0: Who am I? Why am I here?
1: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept. The nomination of my party for another term as your president.
0: Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller.
1: We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Hi, welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and thank you for joining us. Uh, With me in my office today is Mitchell Crum, Sam Mulberry, and Andy Bramson. Uh, we're looking forward to talking about this week in politics and a number of things revolving around the election and politics here in the United States in general. If you would, please take a moment, uh, visit our iTunes page on, fa- on, uh, on iTunes, uh, like us, leave a review. That will help other people uh, find us uh, using uh, Apple's fancy algorithm. Gentlemen, uh, we were just talking about sniffling. We're all getting our coughs and sniffles out of the way before we, uh, before we dove in today. Have you ever seen this much sniffling in a debate Real or metaphorical? (laughs) No, um, so we're we're two debates in. Uh, We're actually, well, three debates if you count the vice presidential debate. And let's be frank, I I don't count it. Um, Oh, well. But uh, let's let's talk about some of the news of the week this week. Uh, What's on your minds? What are you following? What are you watching?
2: Uh, I think, I mean, the main thing that I've been watching is uh, both the people who are and are not um, sticking with Trump after the... After the uh, uh, release of the, uh, I'm not sure how to how to characterize it. I, guess. I did I th- not give
1: th- a uh, warning about uh, strong language on this podcast. Yeah, so that's I'll true. Ask you to edit. Yeah,
2: so we'll say we'll just we'll just say lewd as the as many of the media have have gone. Although very perhaps, disturbingly, perhaps lewd. goes yes. further than that. So, um, but nonetheless, uh, it's been interesting to watch like how many people are both sticking with Trump. And what's interesting is uh, I think a number of uh, evangelical. Magazines such as uh, Gospel Coalition and uh, the Christianity Today and things like that are, are documenting just how many people are, you know, not really moving. They aren't changing mm-hmm. their position a, uh, after that. I think Wayne Grudem, um, may, he, I think there might have been somebody else, but he, but they're one of the few people who have sort of jumped ship on that mm-hmm. front. But there's also been a number of uh, politicians. So we've seen, uh, for example, you know, we've seen Paul Ryan and John McCain and quite mm-hmm. a few other <clears throat> Republicans who formerly. Uh, Had at least uncomfortably endorsed or kind of gotten alongside Trump, uh, basically bail and say that they're no longer uh, with him for the uh, for his campaign. Yeah, although
0: Ryan's kind of trying to have it both ways in the sense that he's. Still saying he's not exactly he walking back his, his endorsement, endorsement, but he says he's not he's going not to gonna actively any, support yeah, Donald Trump either. Yeah, he's right. not exerting any energy on behalf of yeah. that. So what does that I mean. what does that mean for both the the presidential election to to lose some of those endorsements or at least have them weaken? And then what does it mean for for down ballot, um, you know, House Senate stuff?
1: Well, before we get to that, I want to ask our Americanist: Is this unprecedented? Have we had seen any uh, party abandon their candidate like this?
2: Um, it's it's not entirely unprecedented, no. Um, actually, one of the interesting things is uh, Goldwater uh, mm, experienced right. something similar to this. So, for example, George Romney, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> foreshadowing ooh. there, refused to that endorse. Sounds familiar. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and actually, and Rockefeller as well. Uh, yep, so those okay. were two, um, basically. So these were
1: moderate Republicans who refused right. to endorse a a right wing Republican. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: And 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 that actually at the time that was viewed as fairly unprecedented, and that was mm-hmm. an extremely big deal at the time. And, mm-hmm. and in some ways was sort of, sort of a harbinger of the fact that the uh you know, eastern north north northeastern part of the nation was just basically ending its ending any kind of uh, allegiance to the Republican Party and that was sure. that was a signal of that. <clears throat> um mm-hmm. but nonetheless this is not entirely unprecedented that you have some significant members of a party um refusing to endorse and, and get behind the uh the, the uh candidate.
0: Did you get a similar and I don't I don't know the story here. did, did a similar thing happened with McGovern. I mean, I know a lot of Democrats were nervous about his candidacy it was soon as too far to the left, too allied with the sort of extreme peace movement, the hippie kind of culture. Um, but did you actually have major Democrats walking away or refusing to endorse? Or was it more like the the Ryan, I'll endorse, but I'm not exactly going to break my back working for the campaign? Kind of I'll be honest.
2: I, d- I would have to go back and look uh, at that again. I don't I don't think so. Okay. I, I, I would have to, but I'd have to double check on that before I was 100%. The main one, just in <clears throat> as far as the ones that... the you know, you read about mm-hmm. in terms of the people who weren't able to swing yeah. major endorsements is, is basically Goldwater. Okay. Um, and what's interesting is 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 even Hubert Humphrey, right, who came mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the nomination through some pretty, um, you know, s- <laughs> sordid means, yes. um, actually managed to still get most of the Democratic Party behind him right. when he was when he went forward. So the Democrats have been consistently pretty good about mm-hmm. coming behind their candidate, um, no matter who it is and how they got to be the candidate.
0: Mm-hmm. And McGovern, for the, those of you who aren't familiar with Minnesota politics, McGovern. Um, That was the 1972 election was the last time that um, the state we live in uh, voted for a Republican candidate. So that's how far (laughs) left McGovern was. Uh, We even voted for Walter Mondale because he was from here in 1984. We were the only state um, to vote for him. D.C. also voted, but they're not a state. (laughs) Sorry, D.C. listeners.
1: So this seems relatively unprecedented. Uh, to have a couple prominent politicians like uh, George Romney, for example, to not endorse a candidate is... uh, It's pretty extreme, but Mm -hmm. we've had uh, droves of Republican Mm -hmm. uh, leaders moving away from Donald Trump Mm -hmm. and not without consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, A substantial base Republican Party still seems broadly in support of the candidate that they voted for in the primaries that Republican leaders are no longer uh, willing to endorse. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not a big enough group of people to win the election. We're Mm -hmm. talking about maybe 38, 36, 40 percent perhaps of 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 the American population, voting population. So this isn't going to win in the election, but this might do serious long term damage to the infrastructure of the Republican Party.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things to, to kind of look out for here is basically um, what we're seeing here is probably what political scientists refer to as a realignment. So um, we, we're, we're, we're mm-hmm. very possibly seeing the parties um, and the coalitions that that uh, that are part of the parties um, basically basically changing. And what what what. Uh, mm-hmm. What we mean when we talk about a realignment is essentially if you look at a population, there are a number of different interests or demographic groups and things like that. So, for example, you might think about – you know, here around here, we might think about college students or you might think about – um, you know you might think about generations such as baby boomers or you might think about interests or religions such as you know how are jewish voters voting how are evangelical mm-hmm. christians voting how are catholics voting things like that um, and then of course you could also think in terms of uh, you know just pure economic interests are we talking about farmers are we talking about manufacturing are we talking about um, you know banking or wall street or whatever um, and basically who who's representing these different groups which party is better able to pull certain groups into their voting group into their voting coalitions and it, you know historically one of the things that's interesting in my home state of Ohio and Chris's home state of Ohio Mm -hmm. is they are solidly it looks like they are I mean maybe solidly is too strong but they are seem to be tending towards uh, Trump mm-hmm. and that's actually Until recently right well yeah recently it's been a little bit shakier but but one of the interesting things is they have tipped a little more f- a little further that way than usual mm-hmm. and one of the things that seems to indicate is that the blue-collar working class may be fi- maybe just kind of completing this migration over to the Republican Party which right. started a while ago um, but with the decline of unions uh, seems to have really accelerated so so when
0: Historically, when is the last time we saw um, what we consider a a major realignment in terms of parties?
2: So um, a major realignment, uh, probably the last one that we really saw was around the Reagan uh, Reagan revolution, which was in some ways just the completion of a realignment. I mean, realignments take years and years sure. and years to actually right. sure. happen. You know, you suddenly see them in a, in a couple of elections, but they've been yeah. going on for a long time. Yeah. Um, so in, in in Reagan's time, what Reagan basically managed to do was bring evangelical Christians fully into the Republican fold, because prior to that, they were um, mostly Democrats, really. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter and a number of other um, mm-hmm. uh, Democratic candidates really had uh, most of what we would think of today as kind of the e- conservative evan- evangelical vote. Mm-hmm. Um. And so Reagan basically completed that and he also mm-hmm. managed to, of course, bring in the more hardcore conservatives, um, you know, basically like the libertarian types and big business and mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. um, which is more or less stayed there. And I think that's the other side of this realignment. Right now that we're seeing is we're actually seeing um, especially larger businesses and Wall Street banking and things like that is actually drifting away from the Republican Party and seems to be drifting a little bit further and towards the uh, towards the Democratic Party in this election. Why mm-hmm. do we
1: think that is? I mean, we can explain that possibly with the na- with the nature of these two candidates. Hillary Clinton, as has been sort of famously documented, is... Um, well-liked by wall street mm-hmm. and and by the way I, I even as i say that i cringe because i don't like using these blanket terms like wall street and main mm-hmm. street yeah. this creates a false dichotomy right, right. anybody who has a 401k in the country is also a fan of wall street in some kinds of ways mm-hmm. um, so she's a, uh, she's given plenty of speeches uh as as her opponents like to point out that she's uh she's uh, tied up with with you know with big banks mm-hmm. and That's not unusual for a Democratic candidate, uh, Barack Obama, and... Even um, John Kerry and others have also been uh, affiliated with uh, Wall Street investment banks and other sorts of things. But what we have in this election is a a really strong dichotomy between between Clinton, who is that way, Mm -hmm. and Trump, who, although he is wealthy and and a real estate mogul, has railed against big banks uh, rhetorically with not a lot of information about how he might fix them, but – is is that is this is this temporary? Mitchell, I guess is what I'm asking. Is this because of these two candidates, or will we see this? Is this, is this part of your realignment that you're discussing?
2: Uh, I mean, obviously, some of this is um, uh, you know the oddness of this election. So you know, mm-hmm. we have Trump, but nonetheless, you know, Trump is where he is because of underlying uh, popular forces. I mean, it's okay. you know, it's 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 not enough to simply say, well, well, you know, Trump is there because you know of, of completely weird things. There are weird things about Trump. I mean, he's a very popular. Um, well-known person mm-hmm. before he goes into this. But nonetheless, you know, he was he was chosen by a Democratic primary. And I think one of the things maybe that uh, w- one of the most convincing arguments that I've seen for how this realignment, you know, if we, if we want to think in broad terms that I think maybe work a little bit better than sort of just, you know, as, as Chris was saying, this sort of like Wall Street, Main Street is basically uh, urban and rural. Mm-hmm. And we're really seeing a much stronger division now between right. the way people who are in urban environments vote, um, which is primarily heading towards Democrats, and people in rural um, places vote, which is tending much more strongly towards the Republicans.
1: Okay, so with that in mind, and by the way, I want to emphasize for those of you who, are, who have not taken political science 101 uh, in recently, uh, when Mitch talks about a realignment, this is a big deal. These only happen mm-hmm. about once a generation yeah. or so. And so if this is happening right now, we're sort of at the mm-hmm. cusp of a whole new way of electoral politics functioning in the United States. Mm-hmm. One more thing on this, on this point, Mitch, you, just, you gave this rural-urban divide. If that's true, we continue to have an increasing urban population and a de- decreasing rural population. Even states like Minnesota, at a state level, struggle with how do we get young people from, the, from, from rural Minnesota to stay in Minnesota and not to go to mm-hmm. Chicago or St. Louis or Seattle or L.A. or New York or mm-hmm. whatever. How, is, is this a, does this suggest that the Republican Party will have to massively rethink where it draws voters from or die? uh
2: so in general uh that's and in in some ways that's true i mean the parties are always um changing in, in that way though um they're always trying to find new voters i think um one one prediction that very well may come uh, come to pass here is that basically, because the Republicans have managed to control state houses in uh, over 30 states, that they will continue to be very strong mm-hmm. um, in the in in the legislature. So in the House, they will the Republicans are not going anywhere soon. Mm. They they will okay. control um, that that branch of the federal government. So
1: you're calling this is part of your electoral prediction. You think the Republicans hold on to the House?
2: Um, I would say yes. I, okay. it's, yeah. it, it, it would take it would take pretty extreme, even beyond the extremes that we've seen. Um, for that, for that to change, okay. um, and we could talk about that at some point if we wanted. But, but I
0: mean, the, the um, most recent predictions have them at around two hundred thirty, two hundred thirty-one yeah. safe seats. So, I mean, like, and then there's still the toss-ups, right? So, it, it would take a, I agree with yeah. Mitch, it would take a lot of turnover for this to happen. I yeah. just don't see it.
2: And 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 I think the other thing to think about, and this is and this is what will be telling as we as we go forward here is what kind of candidate uh, and what kind of party will the Republican Party try to refashion itself as Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. forward here. And oftentimes, you know, when parties experience electoral defeat, usually there's sort of a a moment of of sort of soul searching to say, who can we try to attract into our fold to win next time? Mm -hmm. You know, which Mm -hmm. which groups can we actually try to say that we will service so that we can actually try to win? And it'll be interesting to see who the Republicans try to draw on, who do they try Mm -hmm. to bring into the fold um, after after this election?
0: Yeah. And the other thing about this whole realignment discussion, I mean, I'm I'm still, I guess, not entirely convinced if we're whether we're going to have a realignment or not. I think it's certainly a possibility. I'm open to that. But I, at the same time, it, it, it's hard to sort of distinguish in this election how much of this is the idiosyncrasy of Trump, who's such an mm-hmm. odd candidate. I mean, you know, the, it just is, as Chris pointed out earlier, so unprecedented for people to be walking away. It's one thing to have Romney and Rockefeller not endorsing Goldwater. It's another thing to have people you know, refusing, to, so many people refusing to endorse, and then so many people who did endorse starting to say, actually, no, right? right? I mean, that's, that's really weird. So this just sort of points to what an unusual candidate Trump is. So that's one thing. But the, if, if there's a realignment going on, I think too, the other thing to think about in terms of time frame is that this, this is probably sort of, my guess is if we look back and say this is a realignment, it starts in 08, right, probably with Obama. Absolutely. And so I think that's where we're mm. – so what we're looking at is not a realignment that's starting now, but we're looking at something that is a continuation of So the Tea the Party Obama's was, was the win. first
1: tectonic cracks in the, yeah, well, uh, in the Republican Party.
0: Well, Obama winning, and then the Tea Party comes, and then you get all this anger, and then gonna, so you get Trump. And what's the next step? And that's what we don't know. The other thing I would just point out here historically that's interesting is, I mean, when I think back, the two cases that we've mentioned are the two I think of as sort of roughly you know, having some similarity, although, again, Trump is such an unusual candidate, um, are, are the Goldwater loss in 64 and then the McGovern loss in 72. And the interesting thing about those two is that they were both followed in the the following election by a victory for that party, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that even though the Republicans got absolutely destroyed in 64 and the Democrats got destroyed in 72, um, their party came back and won the presidency four years later. So I think, you know, we don't. Um, I think this is a problem for the Republican Party. They're going to have a lot of processing to do if, you know, if the presidential race goes the way I kind of expect it to. But at the same time, I don't think that it in any way precludes them coming back in 2020
2: and winning.
1: So th- from that res- perspective, then, because we know it's hard for the for one party to hold on to the presidency for 16 years,
2: um, should, unless your name is FDR.
1: Unless your name is FDR, and then you do it all by yourself. <laughs> That's yeah. Right.
0: It's kind of constitutionally case, prohibited that. Now, so.
1: <laughs> if that's the case, then is it fair to say that the Republican nomination process for 2020 will be? I'm assuming that Trump loses here. More on that in a second. But mm-hmm. if Hillary Clinton wins, the Republican nomination process for 2020 becomes one of the most crucial for them in the last uh, five yep. decades. Yep. Yeah,
2: Yep. yeah. And, and I and I think you know during the once again, I mean, we will probably see you know this essential. Essentially, the stakes will be. Uh, much much higher because we'll see somebody probably probably not Trump himself because he'll be both highly damaged after this election and also uh, even older than he is now. Right, um, seventy seven or seventy 74. Yeah, seventy four. Yeah, 70, yeah, he'll yeah, yeah, be seventy four. Yeah. Um, and so what we'll probably see is who who will Trump essentially endorse mm. and what will make for sort of the uh, you know I don't know what exactly we'll call it whether it's the populist or the um, you know the Trumpian wing. Oh, I like. <laughs> I, like, I like Trumpian. Let's go with that. The Trumpian. Or I, I saw one, of, one of my favorite um, Facebook memes here has been Trumpkin. So you know, make, make, make Narnia great again. Yeah. But anyway, so <laughs> Trumpkin. So 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 which so you know which which what will the Trumpkin? Um, wing of the party too, <laughs> um, and uh, bring back the white witch. no right, not right, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, um, but essentially, you know, how and how is that? How are they going to be able to make peace with sort of the more evangelical side of the party? And what does that mean in terms mm-hmm. of you know these basically you know your appeal to businesses and you know right. basically you know basically uh large economic interests.
0: So yeah, I mean, that sort of like leads to this question of I mean, who's Richard Nixon, right? um Because Goldwater sort of divides the party in '64. And Nixon is the the person who can come in in 68 and kind of – even though he's not loved by any segment of the party, he's unifying enough. So he's not Ronald Reagan on the right. He's not um, – you know, he's not Nelson Rockefeller on the left or Romney. And so he can kind of, you know, draw the party together enough to win. Mm-hmm. Um, in it, it was admittedly, as, you know, we referenced earlier. I mean, Humphrey was, you know, got in there through some dodgy means um, and then has a split in his own party with a Southern Democrat running. Uh, so Nixon sort of squeaks it out. but. But, you know, who can, who can kind of draw the party back together? And that's going to be the trick is, you know, bringing all these wings, including the sort of the Trumpkin wing and the ones who refuse to line up behind Trump. Um, how do you get them to all make peace with each other?
1: Right. Well, I wanted to bring up one other thing from the debate, gentlemen, before we jump into some other things. I'm an international relations scholar, and so I mostly spend these presidential debates sort of behind the couch, peeking out over it, looking between my fingers at these debates, um, <laughs> wincing at what the, what the two candidates say. But one thing that was said at the debates that struck me um, in an interocular fashion between my eyes was that Donald Trump uh, insinuated that if he was president, uh, he would uh, seek to pr- uh, prosecute or investigate and then prosecute and then jail his opponent, Hillary Clinton. And I have heard this kind of language a lot, but not typically the United States. Uh, I was talking with uh, Andy about this before, too. Andy, where do we typically hear uh, threats to jail your opponents from? Uh, Countries that we would call at best um, semi-democratic, often
0: in the developing world, places that haven't been democracies very long that have gone back and forth between democracy and authoritarianism, um, with an emphasis on authoritarianism often. Um, So, yeah, those are the kind of places where you expect to hear about jailing your opponent um, you don't I just I'm, I'm struggling to think of any such example in the United States um,
1: or, or other modern or modern like Western democracies yeah, or no. highly developed high industrialized. Right. which countries. doesn't mean they, I
0: mean like obviously politicians too can be subjected to you know criminal prosecution and can be put Absolutely. in jail and we have done that um, and in this country on a number of occasions not with um, former presidents, um, but we have done that with you know with governors and. But is it usually so part of the platform? But it's yeah. not usually yeah. part of the platform. J- it's not usually part of the campaign your, jailing push. Jailing your right? opponent
1: is not typically a party <laughs> platform. So,
0: although there was one guy who ran on a um, sort of the the crook thing, Edwin Edwards, when he ran in 1990, um, was it 91? I think it was 91. He mm-hmm. ran and he ended up in a somehow. In, this is Louisiana, and so he r- ends up in a runoff with David Duke, who was the former um, leader of the KKK. And so there were actually bumper stickers from some people saying, um, cause Edwards was widely viewed as corrupt and, you know, mm-hmm. sort of built the state out of money and so forth. And, and so there was, there were bumper stickers saying, vote for the crook. It's important. I think um, it was, it's, it's the right thing so, to do. That, or yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was even that too, right? So, yeah. so he ends up winning. He serves his four years as governor. And after that, he got prosecuted and sent to jail <laughs> for a number of years. Uh, but you know, they decided a crook was better than KKK, which seems like the right call.
1: You heard it here first. We're we we're endorsing anyone over the KKK. Crooks are better than KKK. Yeah. So um, one of the things I was struck by, and, and uh, Professor Bramson here teaches comparative politics and teaches um, uh, African politics. Uh, Professor Crumb thinks about uh, the philosophy behind what it means to be a democracy. Why is the threat to jail your opponent a problem for democracies?
0: Well, I think one thing I would point out is, I mean, it just sort of strikes at the heart of the rule of law, which is this idea that, you know, Presidents, governors, you know, leaders of in any sort of any level of government can't just arbitrarily decide, um, you know, what they're going to do with people in terms of sending them to jail or not. Um, we have a process for that. And so we the, the flip side is that, of course, obviously, presidents can choose to pardon. Right. But that's very different to say that we can step in and say we think that the sort of arm of justice was too harsh. It wasn't appropriately applied in a given instance and so we can um, we can you know sort of liberate someone but to say that you can arbitrarily just imprison someone is really problematic because it it strikes back against that equality it says that you know if you don't um, act in a way that the the powerful like they can just sort of arbitrarily throw you into jail for no particular reason other than they don't like you right um, and trump's trying to ju- justify you know, all the emails and stuff but again i mean You know, I I have concerns about what Hillary Clinton's done, but she's been very thoroughly investigated. And, you know, people have concluded that there's just not enough evidence to say that she Mm -hmm. did anything sort of deliberately wrong that would um, sort of justify that kind of Warrant legal prosecution. Yeah, warrant legal prosecution. So so it's really troubling in terms of sort of thinking about the sort of rule of law is really the basis of democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're not a nation of laws, then how can we truly be sort of – a democratic country um, otherwise we 're just going to be subject to arbitrary power above us, and that 's not that's not democratic.
2: Yeah, I think I just want to sort of, just to build off of that, I think I think Andy has summarized this really well, and I think just to kind of take one step back just for two seconds, mm-hmm. is just to comment on this, uh, he used the word arbitrary power a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Just to think about why that's so important. You know, if you look at when what we think about when we think about freedom, we usually think of that in terms of all power needs to have some kind of check on it. So you can't just do whatever you want. You know, one of the reasons that we think monarchies or dictatorships are so bad and aren't liberating, you know, you could have a dictator. You know, let's just, Say, for example, you know, you have a dictator who actually does, by and large, protect, you know, protect you and keep you safe. But we would still say you aren't free because the dictator could do whatever he wanted or she wanted Mm -hmm. um, at, at their will. And so this whole idea that your leaders can only exercise power to the extent that it's warranted by law, it's not just mm-hmm. arbitrary, it's not just at their whim, is really a cornerstone of what we think uh, it means to be free. And that goes all the way back you know, to the long Republican tradition mm-hmm. of political thought, right. that this prevention of arbitrary power is very important. And that's, I think, what's uh, basically mm-hmm. a threat here, I think, as Andy summarized. Yeah, agreed.
1: Well, so I understand what rule of law is now. Rule of law is this idea that it's the, the system of laws in our, in our government uh, super, uh, um, presides over any individual, including right. our leaders. Mm-hmm. What other components are necessary for democracy? If that one is a necessary component, what else goes into the recipe book?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll throw a few things out there and then you can feel free to add in. But we were just talking about this in my introduction to comparative course. Um, Yesterday, So one thing that sort of seems pretty obvious is you need some kind of um, method for selecting leaders that's free, that's fair, that's open to everybody. We usually call those elections, right? I suppose you could use some other term. But, you know, so that really um, allows sort of for, you know, anybody potentially to pursue this office. So any one of the people could rise to to power and could sort of assume this role of governance. Um, Also, you know, kind of related to that, you need to let people choose broadly, right? And so there, there is a case to exclude some people. I mean, so in this country, for example, we exclude people under 18, right, which seems wise. I mean, um, Chris is in my four you, year old. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Like, I mm-hmm. think our four year olds would probably vote on sort of the, the lollipop index, right? Who's Could handing you, out the most lollipops? Would you love to see like, seems... Trump
1: and Clinton catering to the four year I, I vote? would. <laughs> and, but I mean, I think that. Well, some More ways, Peppa Pig for everyone. In some
0: ways, Trump yeah. is already doing that. But uh, anyway, maybe that's oh, a, maybe that's a right. low blow. All but right. I, I do sometimes think of interactions with my four year old when I watch the sort of. You did this? Nah, no. And it's like, what on earth are we talking about? But anyway, um, so I think that we we exclude um we exclude youth voters um at some level because we say you know they're they're not old enough to make a mature decision. It used to be twenty one. Mm-hmm. We lowered that um in the Vietnam War to eighteen um just because we said you know if, if they're if old enough to die they're fight. old enough to vote right. Um, if they're old enough to die for their country, they're old enough to vote for who leads. Um, and sends them into war, right? Which seemed like a, a very a Kantian very... kind of notion. Yeah, right? yeah, and it seemed like oh. a fair, a fair point, right? <laughs> um, so we exclude the children, and we exclude um, sometimes the insane or people who've committed um, felonies, right? People are again who are either have so deeply violated the rule of law that they seem to have sort of abdicated the right to vote, or people who just simply don't have the mental competence. I mean, it's the same argument for excluding the insane well, as for you. We do vary years, on
1: right? that issue, right? Certain states do mm-hmm. allow felons to have more voting yep. rights than others. Yep,
0: and those are again those are gray areas, right? I mean. Like, like just like 18 i mean we could say 21 we could say 16 right i mean Mm -hmm. you could make a case that maybe 16 year olds are fine right i mean what's the you know there's not some magic thing that happens on the day of your 18th birthday right so although ostensibly um, graduate from high school maybe
1: that's the yeah
0: maybe right um so but it's the point is i mean you could draw these lines in different places but we all pretty much agree that four-year-olds probably shouldn't vote right i agree Um, no one's going to draw it down that far so um so, 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 voting, broad voting, um, free, el- free elections, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, obviously, you know, sort of this idea of rule of law that we've talked about, like the laws have to be important. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd throw in there is that you need to have, um, you know, you need to have broad rights, right? That people have to have a right to assemble to be able to yes. sort of. Um, pr- take political positions, um, and that connects to the rule of law, right? I mean, you, you need to be able to be free to do that without fear of repercussion, right? And then the final thing... So that uh, includes freedom of speech, yeah, freedom, freedom of, of religion, speech, freedom, freedom of press so forth, Freedom yeah. to assemble um, with... This sounds like the Bill without, of Rights. Yeah, people it does a lot, sound a lot like that. And then the final thing I just throw in there is um, that doesn't is something we don't relate to much here, but it matters in a lot of countries is that the elected officials actually have to govern, right? And so Mm -hmm. you can't have a situation where you're electing people. It's free and fair. You let anybody participate. You let lots of voters choose, but these people don't actually matter, right? So for example, or they don't, Make the final decision. So, for example, I mean, Iran has reasonably free and fair elections in the sense that they let, you know, candidates run, they can vote, people are allowed to to vote very broadly. Um, They have some rights to assemble, to, you know, sort of have pretty competitive elections, but they also have this Islamic cleric who can veto anything, right? And this Mm -hmm. person is chosen by a religious body, he's not responsible to the people in any way. Um, That's a problem, right? In other countries, what we've seen is the military having this kind of role, right? Egypt, for example. Um, Egypt, for example, right? So, yeah, and, and lots of examples historically in Africa and um, Latin America. So those are the, the main things I'd point to as sort of essential to democracy.
1: I would add one more to that, although I think you've covered the list quite adequately, and that is that um, a real democracy also needs to have some kinds of protections for the rights of minorities. And I don't here necessarily mean ethnic or mm-hmm. racial minorities, but I mean whoever's not in power. Mm-hmm. So if the Repu- if the De- Republicans seize control right. of both houses and the presidency, mm-hmm. there needs to be some sets of rules to protect the 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 rights of the the loyal minor the, mm-hmm. the loyal opposition mm-hmm. the, the right. democrats in that case yeah
0: and I would think that that's sort of, I would view that as kind of an expansion on the whole idea of rights. But yeah, yes, would, absolutely, yeah. that's a specific right within that And our Constitution that
1: does that. It, mm-hmm. it creates those kinds of protections.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, that's Madison's very concerned about that in Federalist yep. 10.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that gets to, and this <clears throat> sort of points to, you know, there are different conceptions of what we want when we talk about democracy. You know, sometimes we talk about, you know, people refer to it as like popular democracy where it's just, you know, mm-hmm. 50% plus one gets to rule. But I think what we usually think of, especially in America, and what Andy and Chris are talking about is much more like pluralist Style of democracy, mm, right? Um, where we say that you know it's not just the majority that matters. You know, we think if right. the people are going to rule, then it can't just be the people who happen to you know who, who who happen to be the most numerous. We need the people to rule in the sense that everybody in some right. way has a voice, and so we right. think that there has to be some way for even minorities to get their voice heard and to have their rights protected. And we usually mm-hmm. think of that as in terms of like the Supreme Court and right. the U.S. Um, and also the abilities that minorities have in the legislature to derail mm-hmm. legislation.
0: Yeah, and an independent judiciary is often seen as really important, too, to Mitchell's point. I mean, uh, having something that can sort of assess whether the rule of law is really being applied. So that's just not in the power of the executive, which could abuse it, right? Uh, As we've already kind of – that's how we kind of got into this discussion. Sure.
1: Though I I would say that uh, not every democracy needs to have some of the things the United States democracy has – uh, our Constitution mm-hmm. emphasizes a right. separation of powers, uh, it tries to balance between various branches of government, and not every democracy has that. And so those things are useful um, mm-hmm. sometimes, uh, but they are um, they're, I don't think they're necessary conditions for democracy.
2: Yeah, and I think that gets back to, like, you know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what do we want out of our democracy? What should democracy look like? Because, I mean, there's mm-hmm. other conceptions out there as well. I mean, a lot of people... Argue that maybe we should be more focused on, and maybe we even do have this to some degree, but we should have an elite democracy mm-hmm. where basically you just have competing, right. uh, you know, elite programs um, rather than. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So, um, so there's a, a, a very famous uh, economist uh, named. Uh, Schumpeter, who basically Mm -hmm. forwarded this idea that, um, you know, essentially what you get in a lot of political parties is you get people uh, forwarding a lot of uh, deception, and you can never really Mm -hmm. tell what people really believe. And so what he said is, instead of just allowing the people to to vote for whom they want, so what we would think of as our primary process, where we get to pick, like, who do we want our presidential candidate to be, and who do we want our Congress candidate to be for the major Mm -hmm. parties, he just said the major parties should basically choose um, who their candidates were going to be, and they should... And they should basically just have to set out a major platform, just a set of set principles like here is here's a program. Here's what Mm -hmm. we're going to Mm do. And basically they would you know then the party would just choose candidates who would just follow that program. So you Mm -hmm. know what you're voting for. You know, if I vote for the Democrats, I know I'm getting people Mm -hmm. who will forward X, Y, Z program. Whereas right now, you know, if you vote for Hillary Clinton, you might say, uh, oh, you know, I know I'm voting for somebody who, um, you know, fill in the blank, you know, somebody who. Uh, You know, historically, maybe the Democrats uh, haven't been particularly friendly to, let's say, banks or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, if you go back to FDR or something like that. And so somebody might say, oh, I know the Democrats are going to be really hard on banks. um, And so that's why I like them. Or, you know, on the other hand, you could be like a like on the Republican side, you say, oh, I know a Republican candidate is going to be somebody who's a solid um, moral person. Um, you know, right. you sort of say, you know, this is the history. You know, they've appealed mm-hmm. to right. religious conservatives, and then we look at this election, we say, oh, wait a minute, um, we've <laughs> yeah. got a, we've got a Democrat who something has gone deeply awry Something has gone the awry banks here. Love her. Right? You know, we've got mm-hmm. we've got a Democrat who seems to be fairly friendly to Banks, and mm-hmm. we've got a Republican who seems to be you know anything mm-hmm. but moral and mm-hmm. you know conservatively Christian. Right. And so you look at that and you say, wait a minute. So is the parties are they telling us anything? Right? Are they actually helping right. us? or Are they actually deceiving us in mm-hmm. our you know democracy? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so this. And so so this elite conception of democracy says we should just get rid of this whole idea right. that the people get to choose their candidates and stuff like that and just let elites choose what the options are and then have the people choose between those elite options. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So it's a you know it definitely would make for a clear sort of meaning to what party is, I think, if you let the elites do that, uh, because they're going to probably pursue particular interests. The downside, obviously, is going to be, you know, if the people's interests change over time right, and the elites don't, um, yeah. then the what the parties are advocating for could be increasingly separated from what the electorate finds sure. relevant, which, again, I think is one reason why we do get Donald Trump this year. I mean, despite all the, the downsides to his candidacy, and which have led to all these Republicans bailing on it, I mean, he is reflecting something very real about the, the sentiment in this country and, and the, the anger that uh, sort of a lot of people are feeling. And so, you know, if you'd let the elites choose, that wouldn't have been reflected in our presidential candidates. Um Whether that's good or bad, I think is a different question, right? But at least it... it it certainly means that it would have been the candidates would have been less reflective maybe of how the country is feeling and so yeah
2: ways. So absolutely, and I think you know that that, that kind of gets to the question and this is these are you know what we 're touching on now are sort of like deep questions mm-hmm. in the theory of democracy, like what should democracy actually be right. doing for us right. and one of the things I think just to think about is you know these are contested questions you know mm-hmm. we usually think you know sometimes we speak in broad terms about oh we 're for democracy right. or you know in, in the 2000s we talked about spreading democracy, but mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. there are sort of deep questions here as to what we actually mean when we say that what what do we actually want to get out of democracy in the end of what does that what does that mean
0: and there is a potential tension it's worth noting we don't have to pursue this rabbit but there is a potential tension i think between a country being very democratic in the sense that it's you know sort of the rule by the people people's will is reflected in some way in the government and a country being ruled governed well right and sort of having effective governance right um, and sometimes what the like, people is like want...
1: Is Aristotelian sense, sort of like having the philosopher king in charge, not particularly democratic, but in the in the well, of the people? Well, sort of. I mean,
0: I wasn't going to go that far. right? I just, I guess there's a, the, the issue is there's a sort of tension tensions between representing the most possible sort of people's views in the most biggest possible way, right, and having a sort of unified sense of governance, right? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of Aristotelian, but I would point more to the sort of like why he doesn't like democracy, right, which is that it's kind of um by the rabble it, it's ruled by the rabble and there's too many people involved right at some right. level I mean so you can even see this in in sort of different kinds of democratic systems right I mean sure. um, proportional representation where you basically have people vote for a party list and then you give the, the list a percentage of seats in the national legislature based on how many votes they won um, is very representative right it does a very nice job of representing the views of the people and some it also makes do it, this what's yeah. that in some countries do does this, uh, and yeah. and it's the problem is it creates very fractured governance right so Israel' is a great example I mean they have you know, they they only require parties, I think it's now like 3.25%. It used to be even lower, like 2%. Uh, but you have to win a very small number of votes to get representation in the parliament, which means when you try to put together a government, you have to get you know, 10, 12 parties in there often, um, and you have to try to make them work together, and it doesn't work very well, right? So it's it's much easier to have unified governance if you do something like Britain, where it's just first past the post, whoever gets the majority governs, and they usually have a majority because it leads to generally a two-party sort of alignment. Um, they have a few others, but they're usually – you know for fairly small groups, right? Um, and you can govern in a much more unified fashion, right? So that's less representative. It's less democratic in one sense in terms of sort of really representing the people well, but it's better for governance. So there can be a tension between sort of the, the, the good of sort of democratic representation and the good of effective governance. You
1: know? Or on this point, let me pose a question to the two of you. Uh, in a summer issue of The Atlantic, Jonathan Rausch wrote a piece about, I think titled How American Politics Went Insane. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's trying to explain the rise of of a candidate like Trump, which has caused many Republican elites to disavow mm-hmm. him or to campaign for him very, very half-heartedly. and trying to explain how this happened. And what Roush is arguing for is a move away from democracy, uh, mm-hmm. specifically within the primary system. He mm-hmm. argues that he yeah. got more moderate, more uh, uh, moderate qualified candidates from both parties when we had less Democratic primaries, yep. when essentially a smoke filled room of party elites would yep. pick the candidates who they would try to pick in order to appeal to the, vast, to the mm. widest uh, group of Americans possible. Mm-hmm. And now we have primary systems where a very committed group of generally more radicalized party elites mm-hmm. on both uh, the Democratic and the Republican side end up picking candidates that are more to the, to the fringes of the, of American yep. politics. Yeah. So can I put you on the record here? Are you, would, what do you think <laughs> of Rauch's idea? Should, should we become less democratic in the primary system?
2: Um, I mean, again, this gets back to the question of what it means to be democratic. Um, I think there's a strong argument to be made that actually, by removing some of the popular control over the primaries, you actually mm-hmm. make the process more democratic. Um, and it's in this, and it's in the sense that Chris, you know, you already said it. Um, basically, if you have candidates that the you know the party elites are choosing who will appeal to a wider range of American mm-hmm. voters, then arguably that's more democratic. You've got people that right. more people will be happy with leading the country. You know, yeah. if we look, you know, one of the things we've been talking. About on this podcast a lot is how these are the two most disliked candidates ever, yep. and yet these are the candidates that the party elite, that the party um, base chose. Oh. And I think that gets to one of the important mm-hmm. things. I don't think we've talked about this necessarily, but you know, when we think about the party primary process, basically, you know, America always has this embarrassing fact that you know we don't turn out very well to vote, Right. and you know, compared to other democracies, we are really just abysmal. Um, Why and- is that? Um, Well there are a number of reasons. Um, uh, I I mean part of it has to do with the fact you know it's just sort of a rational calculation where you say you know what am I going to get out of this and a lot of times what you what you're going to get out of it is you know an hour or two away from work Mm -hmm. having to hire a babysitter having to Mm -hmm. drive somewhere stand in line and the fact is you know. This is sort of the dirty fact that we all kind of know is our vote is not going to change the outcome, right? right. And, and especially with the electoral college system, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the presidency, you know, you may be – you've got a better chance of impacting the outcome on uh, lower-level races. But that's – even then, it's not that great. Mm-hmm. And we vote, um, on
0: t- we vote on Tuesdays. A lot of places vote on yeah. weekends. Okay, I mean, so, so we've got all that. But things, then but but
2: I think um, the other thing to think about then is who turns out – to the primary mm-hmm. elections is going right. to be the big question. And, you right. know, if we already have trouble getting people to show up for a general election where you're actually electing the candidates, right. you got to think about who's going to turn out to yep. another election, do the same thing in the spring. Yep. And, you know, who's going to be able to, who's going to want to do the research, who's going to actually be engaged at that time? And the answer is it's people who are really, really, really engaged in mm-hmm. the party. It's going to be people who are more extreme, mm-hmm. people who are further to the right or the left. And so what you're going to see in the primaries then is, is a candidate that's chosen by the, as Chris already said, the fringes mm-hmm. of the parties. This mm-hmm. isn't going to be somebody that uh, you know most people. You know most moderate Americans is go- are going to be happy with. This is mm-hmm. somebody that um, you know the extreme partisans of a party are going to mm-hmm. be happy with. And that's you know a lot of times you know you look back and that's uh, you know that's that's oftentimes where we end up. You know you look at mm-hmm. some you know you look at you look at various candidates on um, you know e- even going back you know for example thinking about thinking about the Bush years. You know John McCain was a much more moderate. Mm-hmm. Um, widely appealed candidate at the time, but Bush won because he was better at appealing to sort of this grassroots, um, mm-hmm. you know, Republican Republican sure. base. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: McCain. I mean, like in two thousand, might well have won by much more easily um, than sort of Bush did. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it is interesting. I mean, like it does get to the question of where do, where do you want the, sort of the Democratic choice to happen? Do you want it in the primaries to again let these sort of hardcore people come out and choose the party nominee? Or do you want to sort of have the people in November be able to choose and be comfortable? And, and it does strike me like to Mitchell's point. I mean, I think that, you know, even though these people we have were chosen by democratic processes, if we let the elites choose and we had, say, on the democratic side, maybe a John Biden or, or Joe Biden or John Kerry mm-hmm. um, nominated, and on the Republican side, maybe a John Kasich or a Marco Rubio. Right. The the, a lot more Americans would be unified behind the major party candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, They might not be wild. on. if you're Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump supporter, you know, you're probably still not very happy about those choices. Um, But you're going to be less
1: unhappy as a Donald Trump supporter than if Hillary Clinton
0: wins. Well, right. And you're going to and you're going to probably get behind the candidate for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem is all those people in the middle who are now deeply unhappy are saying I'm sitting out. I'm voting third party. Right. Um, They're going to probably line up behind Joe Biden, John Kerry, John Kasich. Or Marco Rubio, whereas right. they may not fall into line behind Trump or Hillary because they just say hey, these candidates are just too unacceptable.
2: Yeah, and unfortunately, what that also does, just to get back to democracy, too, here's. I'll make one more pitch for the elite democracy here. <laughs> is this and that, and that is that, you know, basically it un- it undermines the legitimacy mm-hmm. of the election itself. You know, mm-hmm. because basically what we have now is we've got a lot of people who are saying, you know, I don't want either of these people to be president. Right. And right. I really don't want to accept the yep. outcome one way or the other. Right? You know, they're going to say, even if, mm-hmm. even if, you know, even if they sort of lean more towards Hillary or lean more towards Trump, right. they're like, I don't want these people to be president. And so essentially what that says is, you know, I don't trust our democracy. I don't trust this system. And so in some ways, if we want wanted to sort of prop up and support democracy and say um, you know and show that show that it actually leads to legitimate outcomes um, you know having a process whereby elites have a little bit more control might actually might actually help. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, gentlemen, let me make a model's proposal then and see if you buy into this. Uh, <laughs> this is this is absolutely a half-baked idea. I have given okay. this almost no thought at all. Okay. But uh, if, I mean, if I'm going to go about this elite elite democracy idea that you guys are both proposing here, let's let the two parties begin to constrict the democratic process within their primaries. After all, they run their own primaries. Right. The primaries so, have no requirements. So let's, let's let them become more smoke-filled rooms. I'm going to mm-hmm. worry about how they do that. But in order to get more, make the election itself more democratic, what do you think of this? What if we... Uh, got rid of columbus day uh, as a federal holiday um (laughs) i think there's enough derision about columbus day that we could Mm -hmm. maybe do that safely i work yeah Um, i don't know that columbus has a big constituency so we get rid of columbus day and then um we make the second the first tuesday in november a national a federal holiday Mm -hmm. so that no federal offices open banks are closed there's enough things Mm -hmm. that it's gonna it's gonna um, make it more of a holiday and and here's the here's the sticky part what if we gave everybody 10 bucks for voting
2: Oh, I, I think I think that's mm-hmm. actually a great proposal. I mean,
1: that's it, it, about, you know, if you think about 200 million voters, that's that's two yeah. billion dollars. We spend that, that's like five jet fighters. I mean, that, that's I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's very doable. Right. Yeah. Five, two billion dollars gets us. Um, everybody's incentivized to vote. It's like paying for jury duty. We pay for yeah. other kinds of, of mm-hmm. public services. Why don't yep. we, why don't we uh, give people a ten dollar tax credit if they show up to vote?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, and I think in some ways, you know, what that
1: and the tax
0: credit is probably a better idea than hand yeah, them to handing them just right, handing out right cash. Right. <laughs> but cash um, would
1: be far more popular, you right? I mean, enough. it would be, but it,
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine some problems, but yes. I generally (laughs) like
2: the idea. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, this is what this. uh, There are. I'm not a comparative, so maybe Andy can speak to this. (laughs) But other. From what I understand, other countries already do this to some Mm -hmm. degree, right? They either have punishments where you get fined um, if you don't show up, or they actually have, like, tax incentives. Which
1: essentially is the same thing, right? Right. We're just labeling it differently. I'm rewarding you for showing up, I'm punishing you for not showing up.
2: Right. Right. So, you know, so that. And and essentially, I mean, one of the things that, you know, giving a tax credit or giving some kind of incentive does is it acknowledges. That, you know, it it actually is there actually is a cost to voting, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, especially in states um, that require you to have um, an ID of some kind. You know, those aren't Mm -hmm. free. You have Mm -hmm. to actually go and you have to pay money for, uh, you know, to get the driver's license. You know, maybe it's only 20 bucks, but, you know, if you are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck and hand to mouth um, and you can barely put food on the table. You know, if you have to choose, you know, are we going to eat for a week or are we going or am I going to get a license and Mm -hmm. be able to go vote? I mean, it's a pretty obvious choice, right? You're going to eat. And so, you know, so by actually giving people the funds that it might take to actually get into the process and vote, you know, that's seems like a very reasonable trade.
0: Yeah, I'll make the counter case, which is. The concern with doing this, right, is, um, and I, I agree with Mitchell's positive argument here, but the concern <laughs> with doing it is that you, what you can't do is make sure these people have thought about it before they come in to vote, right? So you could force them point. to come in to vote, and, you know, they, they may have given absolutely no thought to it, and then they come in and they just, like, check some boxes because, like, well, I'm being made to be here, um, either because I have an incentive to do it or a disincentive not to do it or whatever. But um, and, and so the downside is then those people are going to vote but not vote with very – well-informed decisions. So then, I mean, what do they vote on when they walk in? Is it just they just vote for the? Well, I think I voted for this party last time. I'll vote for them again. Or do they vote on names, right? I mean, there's some evidence to suggest that certain names are better, right? I mean, like, you know, if you run in Minnesota, Anderson is a fantastic name to have <laughs> running for office, right, or something like that. So, you know, it. it the question is, well, do you get well-informed votes and then sort of do these poorly-informed votes um, if there are a lot of them swing the election, right? That, that would be the concern. I think on the whole, I think, I think people would take it seriously, and I think I like the idea of sort of incentivizing more of it, but that would be the counter case.
1: Yeah. Okay. Wow, you bought into that more than I thought you guys would. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, yeah, there's some real
0: advantage to having more people actually out voting. It does um,
1: make us more democratic.
0: uh, Yeah, and our government more reflective of the population.
1: Sure. Well, gents, this has been... A grim week in politics, in yes, American electoral politics. Um, I never relish never relish having to send my four year old daughter out of the room so that I can watch the news. Uh, if the news if the news comes with an NC seventeen rating, we have we have done something really. Oh dear, wrong. oh dear. In the in the wake of the in, in the spirit or the, I guess as a palliative to this uh, grim news week, um, I don't want to I don't want to spend any more time talking about the polls. I don't want to spend any more time talking about predictions and likely outcomes. I want to drift into the fantasy realm. I, I want. I want, to, I want some escapism. So, I ask you guys to think about and to make a pitch for who is your favorite fictional president. Who? Mm. Uh, who? Do you, who do you like as a fictional version, a fictionalized version of a president? So, when you say
0: like, do you mean like I enjoy the character, or do you actually want to be governed by this person? That's what.
1: Well, if it's different, give us both.
0: Huh.
2: So uh, one of the things, you know, I, you know, you'd, you'd asked us uh, to think about this last night, and I'll, I'll be honest, I was thinking, I was trying to think about it, and I was like. I guess maybe this makes me a bad political scientist, but I I was I, I, I haven't really seen all that many things that have fictional actual presidents. No, that
1: just makes you a good consumer of so, pop culture. So I guess, yeah. That. I mean,
2: uh, you know, I, I I I was thinking about. It, I was like, there are a number of things that I haven't seen. Like, I know there's Veep out there right now. I haven't seen that. There's Ooh. House of Cards. Julian
1: Dreyfus would be the funniest president we've ever had. Yeah, that would
2: and, be good. And I haven't seen I haven't seen House of Cards. I haven't seen uh,
1: House of Cards. If so. you want to imagine, if, if if Machiavelli and Satan had a child and they ran for president, <laughs> that, that's what you get there. Yeah. So
2: you know, so so all that is to. Like I, I just I was trying to think about like how many fictional presidents anyway I, so I couldn't I, I was actually having trouble coming up with a good fictional president that I wanted to endorse but I but being the sci-fi geek that I am oh there we go um, <laughs> oh I like where this is going I like um, where this is going I think the president that I want to be under is Laura Roslin so oh Pastor Galactica. yes yeah I want to be I, 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 I want Laura Roslin because you know uh, basically she is she's she's somebody who has a moral core right she always wants sure. to do... The right thing, Mm -hmm. Um, and yet, and she also has like the conviction that she wants to lead, Um, you know. And basically, Mm. she she wants to go ahead and make decisions. She isn't paralyzed by sort of the problems, even if they're really massive in front of her. She makes decisions, and she's willing to make mistakes, you know. And she's, Mm. and and I think most importantly to me is she acknowledges when she makes mistakes. You know, one of the best scenes I think in that show is they they decide that um, there's a one of their ships. Um, they think maybe has been commandeered by uh, by the Cylons, their enemies, and is <laughs> sending nuclear uh, nuclear weapons straight at the Galactica, right, straight at their ship. And they decide to blow it up, and they mm. blow it up, and they don't know if it still had mm-hmm. all of their people on it. It might have still had, you know, thousands and thousands of humans, um, which at the time is, you know, because there's only 50,000 humans left, it's a big deal, but... Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they decide to blow it up, and she basically decides later on that that was a mistake. They should have tried harder to save the people on that ship hmm. instead of just blowing it up. And so she actually carries in her pocket a slip of paper that says the name of the ship that it was the Olympic Carrier. And so she has hmm. in her pocket to remind her that she made a mistake and she needs to think carefully about the the, the, the decisions that she's making. Um, so anyway, so that's so that's sort of my my like my, my my vision of the of the of a of a great fictional president there.
1: All right.
0: Yeah. I – you know, I have to, I have to admit, I struggle to think of a great fictional president. I'll, I'll bring up one that I don't want to live under, but I oh, find dear. fascinating. No. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> are we going, to start, is, are we going uh, science fiction? Is this the emperor? Is that uh, no.
0: Well, I'm going, I'm going with an actual president for this one, which is President Snow from Hunger Ooh. Games. Oh, that's, yeah, that's rough, Which too. you have to appreciate somebody who's hardcore enough to actually, like, apparently drink poison uh, and then take an antidote and then suffer, like, from these horrible mouth sores. Uh, all in the name of gaining and holding power, right? I mean, <laughs> this is somebody who's truly, <laughs> truly power hungry, and so I find him fascinating. I also find like he's very pragmatic in, in some ways, and um, very, you know, the exchange toward the end of the book, not to be sort of giving out spoilers, Spoiler. but um, but you know, the exchange toward the end between him and Katniss is interesting, too, uh, which persuades her to do what she does at the end, and I won't spoil it for those of you who have not yet read The Hunger Games, um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? He's very pragmatic, so I I don't want to live under his, his governance, but I um, appreciate him <laughs> as a character. I, I appreciate the book version, I think, more than the um, the movie version. I'll just yeah. uh, editorialize there. But He's very Habesian. Yes, he's very Habesian in a way. Uh, he's sort of the, the Leviathan, if you will, right? Yeah. So um, the Leviathan who drinks poison. And takes an antidote. Um, yeah, and leaves white roses around. So, kind of a very disturbing Leviathan. But anyway, um, I think um, I'm going to not answer your question the way you want. <laughs> um, sorry about that. I like, I have to say, I like sort of when I think about who I'd want to live under, I actually like the idea of not having to elect my person and to have somebody Ooh. who's. Um, you know who just rules well, right? So you the think about and the kings
1: queens of Narnia. Is that what Rebecca yeah, <laughs> I was going to go
0: more with um, Aragorn, who's restoring the oh, sort of go. the the stability. Um, who rules for my entire lifetime because he lives. You know, he has the sort of the <laughs> blood of Numenor in him, yeah. and he's able to govern for a very, very long time. That sounds fantastic. But I could also go with, if you want me an elected ruler, also not a president, um, I could live in the Shire, and I like the the Ooh. idea of a the the mayor of the Shire who um, essentially. You know, just sort of cuts ribbons at parties and does some very low level government <laughs> duties. But it's not mm-hmm. it's not a very intrusive government. And I, so I find the sort of the forty nine years, seven terms of Samwise as mayor um, uh, <laughs> appealing as well.
1: You, you know that by the sixth, uh, the sixth election for Samwise Gamgee, he went dirty. You, you, you know, he had I, to. I don't think he had to. I mean, he's just like it, the
0: power of incumbency, man. I don't know if they had franking privileges. He just puts but, up signs that know. says,
1: I've been to Mordor, and that's it. He's good. He's like, good. I
0: was a ring bearer.
1: Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> like, we could say, you say, I was raised a gardener. Dirt is my <laughs> – Oh, here we <laughs> go. Yeah. We go. Don't get down in the dirt because I know yeah, how to yeah. go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit late to be
1: trimming the verge. All right. <laughs> All, right. All right. Um well, I, I stayed out of the fantasy realm a little bit, unlike you guys, which is, <laughs> which is weird. If you know any of us, I, I, I should be the one pitching the sci-fi president. But um, And also, it was becoming a running joke on this podcast. <laughs> Sam Mulberry had to go to a meeting, so he shared his with me, so I'm sharing his with you now. Uh, one of, he, he's going to share his other one a little bit later, but one of his picks uh, was Michael Douglas's role in the 1995 movie Amer- The American President. Mm. And he played President one. Andrew Shepard, who lost his wife, became a widower during the campaign campaign. And during his time in as the president, this was written by Aaron Sorkin by the way, the same guy who wrote mm-hmm. The West Wing. Uh, so Westman kind of
0: grew out of this Westman movie, grew actually. out of this, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, um, during his time as president, he falls in love with a lobbyist, because, of course, he does, played by uh, Annette Benning, and she's a member of the ACLU, and he's running against a kind of... He's a Democrat, because it's Aaron Sorkin, and of course he is. And, uh, but he gives this <laughs> very and passionate quite speech Republican. about the nature of, of integrity in American politics towards the end of it, which is one of the great sort of screeds um, mm-hmm. of American presidential movies. And so, if nothing, else, Google or YouTube the uh, American President Michael Douglas speech. Uh, mm-hmm. It's only about a minute and a half long, and it's, it's, it's uh, it'll get your blood boiling one way or the other. <laughs> the one I was going to say is a little bit more lighthearted. It's a terrible movie, but I kind of like the concept behind it. In 1993, a movie uh, starring um, uh, Kevin Klein came out called Ooh, Dave. I know which one you going with. You ever seen Dave, guys? I did. Yeah. Dave's not a good movie, but uh, Dave is the idea that <laughs> this, like This Dave. This, uh, car sa- this this like local car salesman guy, some salt of the earth fella, who happens to look exactly like the president, uh, gets pulled in by Secret Service because the president has um, has suffered a, a a fatal stroke.
0: Or doesn't and, he get pulled in before? I thought he was like pulled into like. Be a body double, and then yes. the president. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep.
1: Because yeah. So he, he'd already been doing sort of small time for his own car dealership. Like, right. look, look, doesn't this guy look like the president? And, yeah. And so then he's put in to be a body double, and then the president dies, and in a completely unconstitutional, utterly bogus <laughs> uh, way of operating, they just the the, the White House decides to pull a, to to try to pretend like the president has not suffered a fatal stroke, and so right. this this guy, this auto this guy, has to pal around with the first lady. Who knows it's not her husband. And of course, of course, <laughs> of course, of course, they eventually, of course, fall in love. Right. Um, but uh, the whole point of it is that it's sort of like if you just put a good salt of the earth guy in the presidency, you could fix everything. Mm-hmm. So he sits down with a calculator and redoes the U.S. budget and balances the budget. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a super heroic <laughs> set of ideas that if somebody uncorrupted by politics could just come in and fix things. And that really resonates with a certain sort of sense that Americans have that mm-hmm. politicians are corrupt. And if only we could get somebody good in there, we could just straighten everything out. And as political scientists we find that idea to be deeply skeptical I view that idea with deep skepticism, but I love it as a movie. It makes a great story. Uh, so Dave's Dave's my pick.
0: There you go. Oh.
1: Well gents, I have I've thoroughly appreciated this. Uh, when we come back next time, we'll have to get Sam's other story on who uh, his presidential pick. All right. And we'll talk about we'll see if some other trends hold. We've seen a widening of the gap in the polls. We've mm-hmm. seen uh, predictions for the presidency uh, tilt towards Clinton. We have another week before until our next podcast, unless we, unless something amazing happens, in which case we'll drop <laughs> an emergency one on you guys. We'll also be doing a few more. Um, Uh, individual interviews with some of our colleagues here at Bethel and some of the insights Mm -hmm. they can lend to the political process. In the meantime though, uh, thank you both for for being here. Thank you both for contributing your thoughts and ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on behalf of my colleagues, I'm Chris Moore saying, Go Royals!